Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. I do want to start off just giving thanks to the Lord for the freedoms that we have here in our country. Pray for other nations around the world and then kind of for our time here this morning. So let me just start off with that. Lord, I thank you uh, for the freedoms, for the great things that you've given us uh, here just because we're citizens here in this country. And we pray for every nation uh, around the world uh, for, your, for your goodness in it. And we pray that you uh, flourish uh, in your kingdom uh, all around the world and uh, here as well. And so, God, we, we give this time to you. We pray that you speak to each one of us. In your name, amen. Well, good morning. My name is Wes, one of the pastors here. I've been here for 20 years in like a month from now. And it's been a privilege uh, to be here. I've seen a lot of different things over the years. I mean, when I think about it, my oldest son heads off to college in a couple months. And for the first time, as an 18-year-old, well, the first time he will experience a different church. He's been here his entire life. When I think about that, that is crazy. I mean, when I started here, I still had hair. (laughs) When I started here, I could hit a softball and make a three-pointer in basketball. I can no longer do that. And when I started here, Mitch Malinsky was still a nice guy. (laughs) No, I, I do love me some Mitch Melissa. Actually, a quick story about Mitch. I don't even know if he would remember this. But we first started here 20 years ago as kids are in the ministries, and I'm the youth pastor. I invite families over to our house, and he comes through the house, and he comes into the backyard, and he has this confused look on his face. And I'm like, Mitch, what's going on? He goes, Wes, you have, you're married. And I go, yeah. He goes, you have two kids. I go, I know. He goes, you have a house. I go, yeah. He goes, I just thought you were some young punk youth pastor. <laughs> well, I told him both can be true. But some of us have been doing life together a long time, and we've got to see that through the good and the bad a lot of what God's faithfulness to us here at North. Some of us haven't been together as long, but we've also been able to see through the good and the bad God's faithfulness. Now, some of us have never met yet, and hope, hope to do that. Uh, some of us aren't quite sure about this whole Jesus thing. But my prayer is, and hope for you, is that this is a place that each of us can discover truth and hopefully experience Jesus, the one who loves us and has a plan for us. Now, our world is full of beauty and pain. Our personal lives are full of beauty and pain. And our church is made up of those people, and in the context of this world, therefore, beauty and pain have been a part of North's story and will continue to be a part of his story. And we get to see how each of us fit into that beauty and pain, and hopefully we discover that here as a church as well. Today we're continuing in this series, He Said, that's what he said, based on the book of Joshua. And so far in the series, we have discussed the fact that God and his people are on this journey. Brent mentioned it a little bit earlier, escaping Egypt, wandering in the desert under Moses' leadership. The Ten Commandments have been given to them. They've been given to them twice. Moses dies. Joshua takes over leadership. They cross the Jordan River in miraculous fashion. And last week, Brent talked about how God's people in Gilgal 
were essentially in the land of Canaan. The whole land of Canaan was terrified because of this massive amount of people, God's people. Joshua has the men circumcised in Gilgal, and they have time to heal. They aren't attacked by the other militaries because they're so afraid of this massive amount of people. And then the commander of God's army, most likely Jesus, appears to Joshua at the end of chapter 5 and asks him to take his shoes off for he's on holy ground. You know, just your old run-of-the-mill normal life, right? Rivers being dried up, millions of, potentially a million people could cross, circumcisions of grown men, food provided from the land, and an appearance of the commander of the Lord's army. No biggie. So what is God doing? Brent said it last week, God is renewing his people, and God is also renewing his land. He asked a great question last week, what areas of your life need to be renewed by Jesus? It's an important question to consider. Chapter 6, what we're going to look at today, uh, shows us the, one of these battles with the Canaanites, with the battle of Jericho. When I hear that, I hear, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, 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 Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the world's going to... Is that what you hear in your, your head? That song slaps, man, that's... Slaps. In chapter 7, there's a battle with Ai, or Ai, Ai. And chapter 6 and 7 have different kind of accounts of God's story. Chapter 6 is more about God's faithfulness, and people are to be passive in their approach in regards to God's faithfulness. And chapter 7 is about God's faithfulness as well, but it's more about Israel's failure, and we'll get to see that next week. So here's a, here's a map just to kind of orient ourselves real fast, because this was the desert over here where they were roaming around. They crossed the Jordan River right here. And then here is Jericho, not too far from. And then this is all the land of Canaan right here that are scared of this big mass amount of people. So Joshua 6, you can turn your Bible if you'd like to look at it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell us about verses 1 through 14, and then we're going to read 15 through 25. So verses 1 through 14 tells us that the people of Jericho were held up in the city. So they would normally leave the city, go out into their crops and fields and, and do all the things, but they're scared. So they hold up in the city because this massive amount of people is running. Now the estimates are there's at least 40,000 military within this group of God's people and up to a million people or so in this group. So when you think about it, they're in these camps outside the city. That would be scary with this massive amount of people. Why wouldn't they want to attack them? They're hanging out in the camps outside. So Jesus, the commander of the Lord's army, says to Joshua in verse 2, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. Now at this point, Jericho hadn't been given to Joshua, but this is what the commander of the army says, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. And goes on to say, You shall march around the city once per day for six days. While doing that, the seven horns shall be blown by the seven priests alongside the ark of the covenant of God. The people were asked not to make any noise while going around the city. So six days, walk around the city, blow the horns, but be silent. And so that's what happened. At least the military and the religious people, the priests, 
were going around, and my guess is a number of the people as well, for six days. Now, before we get to the seventh day, I want to talk about a couple aspects of this story. Jesus says, I have given you Jericho into your hand. But Joshua did not have Jericho yet, so what's going on here? Well, I'm not really into grammar or verb tenses, but I'm going to describe a verb tense for you. So this verb tense of the word have, I have given you Jericho. This verb tense here is known as the prophetic perfect tense. And what that means is it hasn't happened yet, but it has in God's mind because he knows the future already, but not yet. It's like a promise that's been fulfilled because he knows it will be fulfilled. Now, why is that important? It's important because it confirms to Joshua that God will see his plan through. And it's a promise to us that God will see his plan in our lives through. And isn't it satisfying when a plan goes according to a plan? You, know, you plan a, a vacation with your family. You, you line it all out, get the rental cars, you got the travel, you got the things you're going to do, and everything goes according to plan, and your family has a good time together. That's pretty satisfying. You have a project at work or home, and you line everything out, you get all the materials, you, know, you'll, you have a timeline, and it happens, and it goes according to plan. That's extremely satisfying. Now, when things don't go together as planned, it's unsatisfying or frustrating. Like when my wife and I, daughter and son-in-law, and Hunter and soon-to-be Brittany Rickert were in Guatemala, we're like, let's go to El Salvador. We purchased stuff. We're in El Salvador. We rented a car. I drove six hours on the scariest road I've ever driven on in my entire life. We get to the El Salvadorian border, and they say, sorry, can't come in. You have the wrong negative COVID test. You need the other test, whatever that was. So we turned around and drove the scary road back. That was unsatisfying. Or when our family had just adopted Eric and Joseph into our home, we're like, you guys haven't been to a theme park yet. We haven't ridden roller coasters. We're going to go California. We're going to have a great time. We're going to ride all these roller coasters, and it's going to be fantastic. Well, you have a picture of our family here. Uh, things are going smoothly at this point. Well, we get on the first roller coaster, the log ride, and this is what happened. There's Eric, there's Joseph, and there's Bryson. <laughs> Things did not go according to plan. For the little kids, we did not ride a bunch of roller coasters that day. They were not a fan, apparently. Our plans don't go the way we don't like. It's unsatisfying. When they do go according to plan, how satisfying is that? And how much more satisfying is it when we get to see a piece of God's plan and how he works things out? And we know that that's, that was the answer to God's prayer. That is satisfying. And that's what Joshua gets to see. That's what God's people get to see. And that's what we get to see. So let's talk quickly about the stone walls of Jericho. These stone walls around the city were at least 13 feet high. And you can kind of get a, a picture. I think we have, this is kind of an idea of what Jericho would have looked like. 
and there would have been a watchtower uh, over here on this, on this side, about 30 feet tall, and they wanted to protect what they had. They wanted to protect their resources. There was actually a fantastic water source that went through Jericho. They weren't too far from the Jordan River. There was a natural oasis that provided a thousand gallons of water an hour, and there was a canal system. So they wanted to protect all that was within Jericho. Most likely, Jericho was built around 8,000 B.C., a formidable place with many rebuilds and repairs over the years, and we're around 1500 B.C. right now in the story. Something they wanted to protect. So imagine for a moment, you're God's people. You've been recently experiencing some crazy things. You're in the promised land, and Joshua comes to you, maybe up to a million of you, and gives this command to march around the city with ram's horns being blown, priests, ark, all in silence. And the first day, you're probably like, okay, let's, let's try out this thing. Let's walk around the city. and Maybe we'll even look for cracks in the walls. Maybe some good places where we can get in quicker. And you start, and you do that the first day, and then, then you come back, and you're like, all right, what, what are we doing now? And they would have had a lot of time to think about it because it only took them about an hour to walk around the city. So it's not like it was an eight-hour journey. It was an hour, and then you get back. It's not even lunchtime yet. And you're like, what now? And then day two, Joshua says, we're around the city. We're going to blow these horns. We've got the Ark of the Covenant. Silence. And the skeptics at this point are like, all right, this is weird. What are you doing? Day three, day four, day five, day six, the same thing. Now, there's some other reasons that would give God's people pause at this point. Because there are some things that God is doing that are contrary to other places in God's people's story. One of those things is that the priests were exempt from fighting, but they were leading the march this time. That would have given, given them pause. The ark was never to be taken to battle. If you read 1 Samuel 4, you see that that is the case. Yet, the ark is a part of the battle. The trumpets were made of ram's horns, but typically during a war you would have used silver trumpets. That's also different in this story. And if they marched for seven days in a row, then at some point they were marching on the Sabbath, which would have been breaking Sabbath. And we, they had just given, been given the Ten Commandments not too long ago, twice. So at some point they were breaking the Sabbath by what they were doing. This would have given them greater pause and and. What, show, what we see here is when they are obedient and faithful in this way, they're despite all of the things that are going on. Okay, so we're going to pick up the story here in verse 15. I'm going to read 15 through 25. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day, and they marched around the city in the same manner seven times, which would have taken about how many hours? Hey, good math. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. 
Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all, all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword." But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought out all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold on the vessels of bronze and, and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And the chapter finishes with Joshua saying, don't rebuild here or you'll be cursed. Don't take anything with you or you'll be cursed. And that's how it ends. So there's a lot to unpack. Um, we're not going to maybe get to everything as detailed as we would want, but I do want to highlight a few things from this passage that I felt led to explore today. First, the miracle of the shouting and the walls coming down and God giving his people this, the city is incredible. I mean, it's a, it's a miracle. It's, it's phenomenal. And Israel was faithful to obey in the process, which is just as much of a miracle because we've seen Israel over the years. It was amazing. This passage is tough, though. God tells Joshua and his people to destroy everything, like everything and everyone except for the metals. Verse 21 says, Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys, with the edge of the sword, and then they burned it. Why destroy everything? I mean, they could have had the walls fall down and then just allowed everyone to live with them. Hey, join, join our people, just like they did with Rahab and her family. That would be like one I mean, God's people over the years, in Jeremiah, they were captives, but they were allowed to flourish. Why not have it be something like that? Or next level would be like, okay, go in, Take the city, but capture the soldiers. You don't need to kill them, but just the soldiers because they're trained and, you know, just so capture them. Next level will be to capture all men. Leave the women and children. Or maybe just, just destroy the military. Or maybe destroy all men, but that's not what we see in the story. Destroy all men, women, children, cattle, and everything that wasn't precious metals. 
So my short answer to the question of why did God do this is, I don't really know. And if I'm being intellectually honest, I'm frankly uncomfortable with any explanation. The common explanation as to why God did this was that the people of the city were evil and they were performing sinful, depraved things and they had a chance to turn to God and didn't. Sinful. Depraved. I mean, I I think that helps like a little. But God still chose for the kids to die by the sword and then by fire. I'll never fully understand it, this side of heaven. I am comfortable not fully knowing every reason for why God does what he does. I'm even comfortable not really liking what he chose to do in this moment. I think there's space for all of us to be uncomfortable with this type of action. I think we have to approach God's word with our faith and at the same time with our doubts and with our humanity. God doesn't ask me to like everything or agree with everything that he does. What God does ask me to do is to have faith and to obey. It's like that with a lot of things, right? Unanswered prayers or prayer someone passes away, there's a sickness, there's a job loss. God doesn't say, you need to like this. You need to agree with it. What he asks for is our faith and our obedience. I think sometimes we're guilty of trying to tie a nice little bow around things that we don't understand. And I think I would be doing a disservice by not just calling it what it is. It's something I don't get but I choose to have faith in a God that I don't always understand. So Jericho is destroyed. And I guess I pictured as a kid, like, the walls fell down, and then they got to live there and rebuild everything back up. Like, they're in the promised land now. They get to enjoy the spoils. No. It's destroyed. They burn it, and God says, don't build here. If you do, you'll be cursed, and King Ahab eventually does. He's a, he was a wicked dude, and I'm sure there was some curse involved. So he destroys Jericho, gives them victory to his people, and they continue on in their journey. I would argue that God's people in this story showed great obedience to God. With all the things that were counter and all the things that didn't make sense to them, They showed great obedience. And it's in the context of this story that I believe shows us what obedience requires. Their obedience required trust in God, and their obedience required them to wait on God. They trusted God because he was faithful to them. He's doing all these amazing things, miracles. He's good to them. Their leader, Joshua, trusted God. Moses, their leader, trusted God. And they did what they were told, even though some things did not make sense to them. They trusted God had a plan, and so they obeyed. They were also obedient while they waited on God. Lots of waiting. Lots of waiting going on. Days where they're walking around the city, an hour, then you just sit around, camp, waiting through the promised land. 
all the while, they're like, okay, promised land, flowing with milk and honey and all the good things, yet they're waiting. They're waiting on God, yet they were choosing obedience. The application for us is to obey, and our obedience will require trusting in God and waiting on God. Another fascinating part of this story reveals to us that there's a call to obey by trusting in God, waiting on God, is about the Rahab the prostitute. This is a fascinating and counterintuitive part of the story. The saving of Rahab the prostitute and her family from destruction and adopting them into God's family. This part of the story should not be understated. It requires us to consider why would God want to save Rahab the prostitute? We're told she protected the spies in Joshua 2, and that must have required faith in God. And it was an action that she took that showed faith, even as a prostitute, that God honored her and her family by saving them. And we see Rahab the prostitute in another very important part of Scripture, the genealogy of Jesus. Genealogies did not include women. Never. They never included women women, always men. In the genealogy of Jesus that's listed in Matthew, there are five women mentioned. Tamar is mentioned. She disguised herself as a prostitute, slept with her father-in-law, and bore him twin sons. One of the twins, who she was named Perez, who would become an ancestor of Jesus. Ruth, who's a widowed herself, went with her mother-in-law, Naomi, to care for her, who ended up marrying Boaz, which is Rahab's son. Bathsheba, bathing herself, seemingly doing nothing wrong, was seen by David, and he went to her and had sex. She got pregnant, and they tried to cover it up. They also murdered her husband. Most likely, given the culture of this day, Bathsheba was taken by David with force, and she would have had no power to refuse his advances. She's in Jesus' genealogy. Mary, the mother of Jesus, wife of Joseph, one of the most humble women ever, part of the genealogy, Jesus. And then you have Rahab, the prostitute, who at some point married Salmon, but before that was a prostitute, chose to act in faith towards God and his people. She was obedient because she trusted in God, waited on God. Now why make such a big deal about Rahab, Wes? Glad you asked. In this account, there are 102 words given to the destruction of Jericho. There are 86 words given to the story and rescue of Rahab, the prostitute. It's about half and half. But we sing songs about the battle of Jericho, and we think about this chapter as the walls falling down, but just as significant is this rescue of Rahab. Second, it cannot be lost on us that Jesus lifted up women every chance he got. Even when it flew completely against cultural norms. In fact, he lifted up women, or the least of these, because they were least of these in culture, every chance he got, and so should we. Matthew 25, 37 through 40 says, Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? 
When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters, sisters of mine you did for me. James 1.27 says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. If our obedience in God does not include honoring women or widows or orphans or the least of these or everyone or our enemies, then it might not be obedience at all. The third reason I bring this to our attention is because God makes an intentional decision to show his people and ultimately us that anyone who chooses faith in him will be welcomed with open arms and immediately adopted into the family of God. Maybe even that person that frustrates you or you're thinking about right now or you're like, no, they shouldn't be welcomed in or they would never, knowing what you know. If God saves Rahab the prostitute, because culturally she would have been considered property, a strain on society, or even worse, he wants to save everyone and anyone. Now the application for us today is obedience. And our obedience was going to require trusting in God and waiting on God. But the word obedience... Ugh. I mean, who gets warm fuzzies when you hear the word obey or obedience? The only time you get warm fuzzies is if you're a parent and the Ten Commandments are being read and your kids are in the room and you're waiting for number four to be read. And then you lean over and you say, see, God tells you to obey me. That's the only time that obedience is like, fun to hear. And how well does that work? But God asks for our obedience. And the story found in Joshua 6 with the battle of Jericho and the saving of Rahab, the prostitute, shows us that obedience is going to require trusting God and waiting on God. So how do you answer that question today? Are you willing to ask God the question, what would you have me do? What do I need to obey? It may take more trust in God. It may take waiting on God. But as we know, as we've seen in the passage today, it's worth it. It's worth it to ask God, what can I do? What would you need me to do to obey you? Let me pray. God, I thank you for your story that you are telling every single day and you continue to tell through Joshua. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that we can trust you. As we explore this idea of what it would mean for us to obey you with the big and with the small, I pray you give us encouragement. I pray you give us answers. I pray that when we start to struggle or doubt or our faith starts to wane, that you pick us up. You remind us who you are. You show us one of those stones of remembrance. 
that we can look back and see your faithfulness. And because of that, we will get to be faithful to you because you're a faithful God to us. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Uh, when, when Bryson was a little guy, he loved to just explore, get into everything. He was into everything. I mean, he'd find the grossest stuff on the ground. I thought, where'd you even find that thing? But he was obsessed also with power outlets. And I'm like, that's not a good idea. So what we did is we handed him a fork. And we, no. Um, but we told, him, we told him not to go over there. And we made him obey us. We asked him to obey us. And why did we do that? We did that, one, because we knew more than he did, and two, because we cared for him. And that's when God asks us for obedience, we need to know he knows more than we do, a tad bit more, and he cares for us. That's why he asks us for our obedience. So I encourage you guys, if there's something that you're feeling impressed upon to do, tell somebody about it, let them hold you accountable, let them encourage you when you mess up, let them give you grace. Tell somebody else what God is asking you to obey. And like, like Joshua and Rahab, we'll get to see God move in crazy ways. Love you. Have a good week. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.